0: Not proud, but that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on. Hi, everyone,
1: and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago, in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, And I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Louise. Hi, Louise. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased you're here. We've been emailing back and forth a little bit. And you have volunteered to join me and share your story. But you and I have something in common, and that something is poetry.
2: We do, don't we? Um, Yes, Instagram. Where I first started sharing my stuff in a public space.
1: Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments, but first I want to open up the floor for you and ask you, Louise, to tell us about yourself and tell us your story.
2: Thank you, Jean. So, yes, my name's Louise, um, and I would now count myself as an alcoholic. My story always starts at my, my crisis point. Um, I found myself sat in an AA meeting at the end of March 2009. And I i had no idea what I was doing there. I'd, um, I'd driven my car into a ditch without any recollection of getting into it, putting the key in the ignition, driving it out of the pub car park, getting down the road. But I knew I had because I was stood there looking at it. And it completely and utterly freaked me out. I'd gone back to the guy um, I'd been drinking with. It had been a school event. Uh, he very kindly got his overalls on, got some rope. His wife made me a coffee. And uh, she said, to, he said to me, I knew I should have taken your keys off you. And I can still remember how my hackles went up at that and how offended and affronted I was. I'd never had a great relationship with alcohol. It wasn't a comfortable thing for me. But it had never been something I'd called into question. I'd never looked at it. And yet here I was, sat in this meeting with these people. I did not want to be there, did not want to be with them. I had my coat on, my legs crossed, my arms folded. And I just sat in this space thinking, this is not my life. This is not my life. I'd got me home. I'd, I'd been in one piece. The car had been one piece, not a scratch, not a mark on it. And I'd, I'd woken up the next morning and just been horrified by what I'd done. Quite often, people will turn around to me and say, "Oh my God, you could have, you could have died." And I, it wasn't that. wasn't it You know, it didn't matter. It didn't matter that I could have died. What mattered was that I could have killed somebody else, and my children could have become the children of a drunk who killed somebody. And I could not understand how I could have done that to them. They were eight and six at the time. They were my world. I knew what it's like to be uncomfortable with who you are. I didn't want them to have that. I wanted them to be loved, to be adored. And the fact that I could have put their lives and their emotional stability at risk just completely threw me. And so I'd sat, and I still remember exactly where I was sat, Googling what to do if you have a drink problem. And no matter what order I put the words in, what question I asked, the exact same result kept coming back, Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) And I just sat there looking at this thing on the screen going, well, obviously not that. There must be something else for people who aren't that. Because that is ridiculous, just ridiculous. You know, I, I just turned 41. I had a, a good job. We had a house. I had a family. That wasn't what an alcoholic was in my head. But after several different attempts at Googling different statements, I eventually went into the site. And then I found the questionnaire. And the questionnaire says, you know, we may have some questions that could help you understand whether we can help you. So obviously I did the questionnaire. This would prove that there would be no need for me to be in this space and that there would be somewhere else that I could go. And I went through the questions. Some of you may know them. They are are very black and white questions. They are either yeses or nos. I answered yes to seven and maybe to two more which evidently are not maybes they are yeses but they they still come up as maybes in my head and then i got to the end of the questionnaire and it said if you answered yes to 3 or more then we may be able to help you and i i was floored absolutely floored so i did the questionnaire again because this was nonsense and i i can do questionnaires and get the answers i want so obviously i would Going to go back through these questions and I was going to work out which questions I shouldn't have said yes to and I should have said no to. And then I'd get to the end and I would get less than three. And I'm really grateful for that moment where I sat there and I did not lie to myself. I know people who have lied. I know people who've got it less than three. I know people who who thought they didn't get them all right, therefore they weren't alcoholic. And so I found myself sat in this meeting (laughs) with these people because I had nowhere else to go nowhere else to go. And these people just weren't what I was expecting. They were clean, well-dressed, well-spoken. They were talking to each other in an open, embracing, engaging way. And I don't think I've ever felt so not in, but not out at the same time. I took my cup of coffee. I sat and listened to this woman, a woman talking about her journey in sobriety. And then sobriety—they'd all given up. <laughs> they'd all given up. What on earth would you give up for? I mean, why would you give up? How would you give up? Um, how, how do you how do you watch a rugby match without a pint of beer? How do you eat spaghetti bolognese without a glass of red wine? How would I do Christmas, birthdays? I mean, my daughter would get married, there'd be champagne. It never amazes me how I went to her wedding, you know, when she was six at the time. But in my head, all these scenarios that needed, required alcohol, alcohol would be part of. I would need the alcohol to be at these spaces. And yet I was sat there going, I am not an alcoholic, but I am not giving up because that is nonsense and I'm certainly not going to be congratulating myself on giving up or counting how long I've given up for. But I sat in this space and I began to listen a bit. And when when I walked away from that meeting, when I walked away from that meeting, I realised that this thing that I had wanted my entire life, that had enabled my entire life, that had been part of my entire life didn't actually want me to enjoy my life, it just wanted me dead. It wanted me to die in a gutter. It didn't care about me. And the tears began to flow and I cried. I cried full of self-pity for myself because I could not contemplate a life without it. I did not want to contemplate a life without it. I got called into a meeting the next day, at which point I discovered there was a program, there was a God, and I just didn't want that. I didn't want the cult. I didn't want the structure, I did not want to be told. And yet I agreed to go to another meeting. People took my phone number, people texted me to ask if I was okay. Somebody even rang me. And I didn't answer the phone for the first few weeks. And in those weeks, I kind of went, right, okay, if I'm going to go out, it's going to be with a decent bottle of red. So we had the decent bottle of red. And then and then there was a night when I had a beer, because I needed a beer. And then there was a night when I was left alone at home on my own, with the, without the kids, they'd all gone away for the weekend. And uh, I needed something to have with my dinner, and I, I found some vodka. So I had the vodka and orange with my dinner. I then ran out of orange. I then realised I'd polished off half a litre of vodka in about the space of an hour. And I actually felt okay. (laughs) I felt okay. I was standing completely stationary. My hand held in front of me didn't move. And I thought nobody should feel okay after half a bottle of vodka. In an hour, especially when most of that was straight. I then went to the meeting that changed my life. Sat listening to a woman who'd been in the rooms for 12 years, who'd stopped going to meetings. And then when she came back, no longer had the house and the job and the kids. Was living in her car, was drinking cans of lager. And in that moment, that's where I saw myself going. I went home via the off-licence, bought a really crap bottle of white wine, drank that, watched several episodes of Brothers and Sisters, none of which I can remember, and went to bed. And the next morning decided that I had to do this thing. This was a tea junction. This was not a crossroads. If I carried on drinking, I knew exactly where I was going to go. It was not going to bode well. And I would have to take full responsibility for knowing that it was not going to go well. Or I gave up, so I gave up. But I wasn't going to join him in the programme. I wasn't going to find a sponsor and talk to a woman. I had no desire to talk to women. Didn't feel comfortable around them mostly. I spent most of my drinking years with guys, drinking pints of lager with six-foot-tall Irishmen who could drink a lot more than me, but I could always keep up. And if I couldn't keep up, I would go to the loo, vomit it all out and then come back and top it up again. So I went to the meetings and I didn't join in. And it was really, really tough, really tough. It was like waking up on a roller coaster every single day. Full speed, strapped in, tied down, unable to do anything, unable to think about anything. Until it stopped, until it stopped, and then I would just go to bed. I'd go to a meeting, or I'd be in bed by six, have dinner with the kids and go to bed, and scratch up another notch, and another day. Just sheer willpower holding on to not drinking. And then I went to a meeting where somebody talked about their car accident, and I realised that I had completely and utterly forgotten about mine. That while I wasn't paying attention, my head had moved this life-changing, horrendous, horrific thing that I thought I would never forget in my entire life out of sight. And I had forgotten. And at that point, I knew I just had to join in. I knew I had it. I had it. I had this thing that they had. I had this obsession. I had this craving. I had this mind that did not want to face into it, that wanted me just to ignore it, pretend I hadn't got an issue, go out and have some more. You know you want to, but I couldn't. I just didn't trust myself. And it wasn't that blackouts, blackouts as I know them now, were just part of my drinking. They'd always been part of my drinking. My very first drink at university, 18 and a half, having had not a lot of alcohol whilst whilst growing up, partly because I wasn't really allowed out. That very first drink at university had resulted in a blackout, as I now know it. I'd had two or three pints at the bar with these people I'd just met. And then the next thing I knew I was waking up in my room and in this guy on the floor in his underwear. No idea how he got there, no idea what his name was, how I'd spoken to him, anything about happened except that he was on my bedroom floor. I had no idea what I said to him that morning, no idea where he went. I occasionally saw him in the following months with some friends who, who just looked at me and looked away. And that just set a pattern. Set a pattern that every now and then Louise would do something really crazy, not remember what she'd done, and just expect everybody to cope with it. And I never changed. Those events just carried on happening through all my adult years, into my marriage, into my kids' lives. Every so often I'd wake up the morning after the night before and just not remember. I can remember waking up once to find my daughter, who would have been about two, lying next to me. My husband had gone off to sleep somewhere else, and she was lying there, all snuggled up. And I was thinking, what on earth is this smell? This is just awful. And I sat up to find that I'd vomited all over the duvet. And yet this poor child had come and snuggled with me. and that heartbreaking as it was, had not been enough. I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to put them through this anymore. And so the next time somebody asked me to read in the meeting, I I took the piece of paper and I said, my name is Louise and I am an alcoholic, and I read. And it broke me. I thought it was the most disgusting, dirty thing I could ever have attached myself to. But I also knew that it was the only answer I was being offered. These were the only people who wanted to talk to me about my stuff. These were the only people who had any idea what was going on inside of me at that point in time. Who knew how terrified I was. Both of what I'd done and both of where I was going. And yet every time I turned up they held their hand out to me. They got in touch with me, they rang me, they asked me how I was doing and they shared their souls. I still wasn't doing the programme because I just couldn't. But I did have this feeling of being in this, in this room and it was, it was pitch black, no windows, no doors, I couldn't see anything. But I was sat in this sofa and this sofa was so comfortable. So comfortable, and I think it was just the first time I ever really felt safe ever just felt safe. And I started joining in more of the meetings. I started meeting up for people with coffee. I started letting words come out of my head. Thank you for your share. This is what it talked to me about, but I still wasn't doing the programme. I still wasn't doing God. And I wasn't getting a sponsor. And then one night, one night my husband, um, who is now my ex-husband, left out half a bottle of red wine. And I, I was still up and I was tidying up. And this wine, it sang to me from across the kitchen.
0: Louise, come here, come here, come here.
2: And I found myself just drawn to it. My entire being pulled towards it. And it was saying, you know, just have a sniff, just have a sniff. And as I got closer, it then became, just have a sip, have a sip. Nobody will know. Nobody will know. And before I knew what had happened, it went from being this attractive compelling desirable thing to this creature in the bottom of it dirty slimy smelly nasty grimy a bit like Gollum out of lord of the rings going come here my pretty come here my pretty and i knew that if i drank that wine that's where i was going and i finally texted somebody from the rooms and said i nearly drank what do i do And she texted back to me, Louise, you need to pray. (laughs) And then I texted back to her, no, I'm really serious. This is really bad. I nearly drank. What do I do? And the text came back, loud, clear, capital letters. Louise, get down on your knees and pray. You know the serenity prayer. And I can still remember that first prayer. I remember kneeling against this wall. I can remember how uncomfortable I felt, almost shameful, and yet God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And something shifted. I went to bed, I slept, and then I got up the next day. And it was like the roller coaster had stopped. It had just stopped. And finally, finally I could breathe. The craving hadn't gone, but the roller coaster had stopped. And I became aware of being in this tunnel. The room wasn't dark anymore. It was a tunnel. And as I searched for the end of the tunnel, I could see, see lights. But the lights weren't the end of the tunnel. They were torches. And they were being held for me, burning torches held for me by the people in the rooms who'd been reaching out to me. And I saw this line of people. And I knew, you know, this this was the way. This was the way I had to go. So I started looking for a sponsor, and I started to look at the steps. And I started kind of going, okay, then, God, right. Let's make. Let's see how this goes then. God, if you are out there, if there is something there, and if you are going to have to help me, then you really are going to have to help me because I have no idea how I do this thing on my own. I have no idea how I exist in this world in any other way that does not require alcohol at the end of the day, and I am going to need your help. I'd listened to enough stuff to realize that the life, the life I had, the way I lived it, the way I thought, all that had to change. All that had to change because all that required alcohol. And if I was going to get to a point where I no longer required alcohol, then I needed to change how I lived my life. But I needed help in that. And the help came. It was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. If I if I was facing into a problem or a challenge with the kids or my husband or, or work, suddenly I'd be talking to somebody who'd had exactly the same situation and talked to me about what they did or where they went. I had I had a bill arrive out of the blue for several hundred pounds and no means of paying it. And then I had a, a refund for a utility thing that. I'd never had a refund before in my life, and the the two <laughs> amounts matched. It was just phenomenal. I went back to work after having been off sick. I I collapsed in the heat. My body just collapsed, and I slept for sixteen to eighteen hours a day. I couldn't speak. I couldn't think. Um, and I and I I put it down to my body needing alcohol like oil, like a car oil. I wasn't a petrol drinker. I was an oil drinker that was obviously some underlying element of alcohol within my cells. And the minute that was all gone, my body just stopped. And little by little, it came back. Little by little, as I handed it over, as I asked for help, as I talked to other people, as I sat and shared in meetings, I started to do this thing called life without the need for a drink at the end of the day. I went back to work to a different role. There'd been a change What well, I'd been away. I'd know what I would do, what I was going to be doing. There were some very difficult people I was going to have to work with. I asked God for help. And within a week, those difficult people had gone. Just, and that, do you know what, those, those things just kept happening to me. Coincidence after coincidence. And the more I handed my life over to him as I know him, The more help came, the easier it got. And I just started to stop projecting into the future, to stop beating myself up with the past. And, you know, little by little, it got better. I found a sponsor, started working the programme, had to find another sponsor when she relapsed. I had some time away from some meetings when I thought I was too busy and too better. And in that time, my head became slightly dysfunctional again. My ego returned, my justified resentment and anger. And I found myself in the position of needing to get back into the rooms. And I sat in a meeting room thinking, I've got to get back into doing this regularly. And as I sat there, They said they needed a tea person. And then I really saw how deranged this illness could be. Half of my head saying, we are not doing tea. That is for newcomers. We are not coming every week. We are not going to talk to people. That is not what we want. And the other half of my head going, I have to get back into meetings. I am losing my sobriety. I am losing the ability to live my life the way I know it works best. And I had this crazy, crazy debate in my head until my hand shot up and I said, I will do the tea. The relief. And tea, you know, tea is a service position. Every week I would be at that meeting and then somebody said, Sir Louise, secretary is coming up now. About time you did that. So I took on the secretary position every week I was there. And then a year later, sat looking at Treasurer and somebody going to me, well, you don't want that one because if you do that, you're going to have to be here every week for two years. And I said, that sounds perfect. I need to be here. I've still got my L plates on. I have not got to a point where I don't need to be here. So I took on more service positions and I did therapy and I found different sponsors and I had sponsees and I began to discover that I could actually learn to love myself and that when I loved myself and cared for myself, that I began to understand how others. Needed to be cared for too. I began to look after my children like the mother they needed. I began to look after my parents. I began to be there for other people in a way that I had never been there properly before. My marriage didn't survive. I'd hurt him too much in the past. He couldn't move on. And after five years in the rooms, I sat with God and said, Really, is this what you're asking me to do? If I'm going to put my sobriety first, does it really mean leaving my marriage? And I looked at everything that I valued. Everything that I valued was about family unit, kids being brought up in a functional home. But I also knew that if I stayed there, my sobriety was at risk. There was no financial security, no emotional security, no physical security, and there was alcohol. And I spent several weeks going to meetings, crying my heart out looking into this void and thinking how on earth do I leave him I was the only one working I was paying all the bills there was no spare money and then a friend turned up and said you can always come and live with me for a bit and so I kind of did I just stepped off the cliff just took one step moved in with a friend for four weeks at the end of those four weeks with Her, another friend, said you could come here. So I stepped again into that friend's space with no idea of how I was going to move out of this, no idea where I was moving to, thinking that this change would have just instigated my husband to be able to move on and slowly realising it hadn't done that and it wasn't going to do that. And actually this could possibly be the end of my marriage. I went to a meeting and talked about my lack of fear of financial insecurity and my amazement at how safe I had felt taking these steps because I knew the answers would come. And a guy in the room said, I'm going into rehab and I need somebody to house sit for me. I think it would work out really well for both of us. And I don't really think I'd let anybody else do it, but we came in together. I really bonded with you, and I'd love it if you looked after my house for me. And so I moved into his house for four months. The kids came to stay, took it in turns. And that was when I started to realise that actually, do you know what, when I put my sobriety first, and I, I do what I call the oxygen mask analogy of taking care of myself so that I can take care of others, that they ask you to in the aeroplane when they're going through the emergency procedures, that if I do this, then the rest of it just falls into place. The kids and I ended up getting a new house together. They came to live with me. We started again. We found furniture from fellows in the rooms, from friends, and we started building a new life. And I became a a single parent with two teenagers. Certainly not the life I wanted, but the life that obviously was the one that I needed. I began to talk about my recovery more, to share it with others. Doing online work with Laura McCowan on Wattle and now The Luckiest Club. Starting to host a meeting there giving away the only thing I have to give away, because I love it. I love it. I found a way of living and a way of being that had just felt so inaccessible for so long and yet has become such a core part of my being. That when I sit with myself and my God, my God of my understanding, my choosing, and when I love myself and I take responsibility for my actions I apologise for my errors I seek to love to love those who look to it look for it from me and I don't judge I don't assess you know what it all just comes together it all comes together I started writing some poetry as as Jean said and uh That's been really amazing to sit on Instagram, connect with fellow alcoholics, people in recovery, people reaching out. I have got a particular favourite that I will share with you now. Alcohol drowned my soul, filled me up, made me whole. Left no room for contemplation, space for my imagination. A life bereft that could not see the absence of a sense of me. Time unfurled the barren land, choking air and sinking sands. It was in that foreboding gloom I came across a sacred room, where hands reached out and brought me in, protected me from wandering, gave me food and warmth and love, reminded me I am enough. I never felt I was anything near enough. I have never felt worthy until I came into recovery. I accepted I was an alcoholic. I realized my powerlessness. I came to believe in this thing that some people call a God, and I gave it my life. And when I follow the steps that he asked me to take, and I do the things he asked me to do, and I ignore the things that I want to do, that I'm not ready to do, it all comes together. I've been trying to write a novel and it's been going really badly because I've been too busy. And then I got offered redundancy in July of this year. And I realised this is my chance to do my thing. So I've taken redundancy. I've handed that over. I'm trying to write a novel. It's coming together quite slowly. But I've got the support of my children, the love of my family, enough money to get me through a year or so. I'm just going to see what happens. I think I've got something that needs to be shared. It certainly feels that way. Thank you, G.
1: Thank you, Louise. You are an incredible storyteller. Uh, and it's not easy to tell our own stories the way that we might tell. A compelling narrative that doesn't belong to us. So I applaud your ability to shape your story so beautifully. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I want to hear a little more about your novel. Can you? I, I know it's hard to talk about a work in progress, so I won't ask too much. But are you mining the lessons of your own life? Are you. (laughs) do you think
2: (laughs) so there's a very funny story there's a very funny story I went on an amazing course in 2004 2005 with an amazing group of people um sadly the majority of which I've I've lost touch with and at the end of that course there was a, a bit on our purpose um and lots of people were going off to become life coaches and to do other stuff and I had this thing that just said no, there's something, there is a something, there's a something here, I can feel it. Um, And I, I ended up writing, writing what I thought was a short story. And uh, it was a short story about this woman who realized that her life had kind of fallen apart and that she needed to give up drinking alcohol. And when I wrote that short story, I really thought that's all it was. Uh, I thought how amazingly interesting I've written a book I've written a story about this woman who needs to give up alcohol I I did not see myself in that space there was no attachment to that at all Um, and I just put it down and then when I came into recovery and I start I did um, a writing course and picked it up again I realized it was the first chapter the first chapter and that actually we needed to know about her past we needed to understand what had got her to that point and we also needed to know about actually what she was going to do now and that is what my novel is about it's about this woman who realizes that she needs to stop drinking and and we learn all about what got her to that point and then how she starts starts the next day and it burns a hole in me it burns it burns a hole in me I, you know, i've been trying to write it for 10 years now and i'm four chapters in so so excited about being able to sit down and finish it hopefully
1: oh i hope you do and it's a it's a wonderful terrible experience <laughs> to open our hearts and write the truth i i sometimes write in coffee shops at least pre-pandemic and I could only work on some characters there because there were some scenes I wrote uh, in my first novel that were unpublished to this date by the way someday it'll get published but they were I would be in tears as I wrote them and because you just have to find that place within you that can really experience what that person is feeling. And you go to this place, it might be a dark place, it might be a scary place, it might be a funny place. Um, And it it, it just, I'm sure there are some people who can bang out 5000 words a day, and not enter into the emotion of their characters. But I think for most of us, we go there and we live what that person is living. And we Write what they're feeling. But so interesting that you found that story within yourself before you had entered into recovery. I can completely relate to that because the theme song for this show, which is called I Own It, and I think people that listen to the show regularly are familiar with the music at the start and end of this podcast. I wrote that in 2008, which was several years before I quit drinking. And I I wrote it about facing the truth of something from my past, but it it resonates so perfectly for recovery. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? There was the lesson within me waiting for me to see that I already held the truth in my hand and didn't even know it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And it is that case, isn't it? I think that quite often we don't see the signs that were there for us before You know, I I think about the moment when I came into the rooms as being the first time it was really held up to me, but I believe it's probably the first time it was held up to me that I saw it. It had probably been held up to me before, but I'd never been able to see it, whereas this time I saw it and I did something about it. And I I find it amazing that I wrote this, this story and just had no attachment to this woman. And yet, like you say, something inside me was trying to tell me. So, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. And, yes, it's really hard to write, and that's why I've, I've been unable to write it whilst working, whilst doing other things, and I realised I had to stop doing everything else um, because you have to go to those places again. You know, I have to write about her going into these really dark places, and it is really difficult. But I'm also writing about her facing into it, and that first day – we go hour by hour through her life is a very slow coming together, life will really slow down in those chapters and it's going to be really interesting to see how it works running the two stories in parallel.
0: Mm.
1: Now, poetry is a story boiled down to the essence of its truth. And I think people think it's easy to do that. But in order to write meaningful poetry, you have to take a scene or an emotion or an event and strip away everything but the essence of truth from it. And when you do that, that truth resonates with almost everyone who reads it because they're not distracted by the details. We all know good truth when we hear it it rings true to us. So do you when you're writing poetry, do those words just come to you? Or are you thinking for a long time about how something feels before you can put it to words?
2: No, they just come. They come and then I, I remember when it first started in I think it was February 17 or something, I'd I'd never really written poetry before, I've never been inclined towards it. And then I suddenly just started getting these phrases in my head. Um, and they just wouldn't go away. (laughs) Just a phrase in going over and over and over. I'd be out walking with the dog, and there'd be this phrase, and then there'd be a following phrase, and I'd have to stop in the field and and key it into my phone so that I could move on. And a friend, when I started putting it on Facebook, to friends and stuff, she said, "You need to put it on Instagram because that's where it is." And I'm like, "Instagram? What's that? You know, I don't do social media. That's not my thing." And she was going, "No, you need to put it on there because you will find people, and people will want to read it." Um, and it, it did. You know, it came. I call it. I well, I I say it comes like vomit. It, <laughs> this thing just burns up, and I have to put it out if I don't do something with it. It doesn't go anywhere. It, you just hold on to it. So. Yeah, they, they just come. And you know, in some days I was writing two or three at a time. Um, and then it kind of it just slowed down again, which I took as a kind of a sign that I'm I'm ready to shift back onto the novel and, and start doing something. And it was nice in a way, writing poems and putting them on Instagram because because they come, you process it, you put it down, you publish it, you let it go. The flow is really quick. Um, and I love that ability to be able to kind of just process what I needed to process internally because it's my emotion coming out in the form of of words that come together to kind of write some rhythmic ditty and mine quite often have mine are generally rhyming um I love to dance and I I love to dance I love words I love puzzles I love patterns and I think poetry really suits that because it's words in a pattern that are rhyme, <laughs> that are dancing you know in some kind of rhyme um with the rhythm and I I think it was just a way of me reconnecting again with my core to give it some training and some exercise so that now that I'm ready to write again I'm there I don't need to kind of warm warm up to it does that make sense oh yeah
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you're staying connected to that part of you that just keeping keeping the flow open Right. And yes. it's it's interesting what can shut that off. I feel it can be too much news or any news. <laughs> oh, indeed. It can be cooking or responsibility or cleaning, the shoulds, the list of shoulds. And there's always a list of shoulds. So to find and hold a space for ourselves to be creative in whatever way. I mean, for some people, they're creative in the kitchen or they're creative in how they interact with children. I mean, there's so many ways to be creative. Yes. And the question is, how is it filling us up?
2: Yes. I mean, even, even, even problem solving is creative thinking, isn't it? There's a, there's a creativity in, in solving problems and working things through. And I think it's, for me, having kind of watched people in the rooms recover and connecting with faith, I think creativity is so important um, in recovery because we need to find a way of doing something with our emotional selves that allows it to flow so it doesn't get stagnant.
1: You mentioned how important the relationships you have with those other people in the meetings, and your recovery meetings has become to you. Uh, I actually wrote a poem about that called Chairs in a Circle. And it talks about how the way that we connect with other people in recovery, either one-on-one or in a group, it's sort of this in-between space. It's as if we can walk into this group and the chit-chat, the small talk doesn't matter. We can, we can go right Right to the heart of the hardest things the things we would never say somewhere else, and people just hold space for us to say those things. I mean, we can't behave that way in the world. <laughs> we can't uh, conduct ourselves that way in regular yeah, relationships, yeah. so it's this sort of in between space where the 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 pillars of our regular relationships aren't necessary there, so in our regular relationships, we have things like um manners and back and forth, you know, exchanging birthday gifts, or "Mm, it matters to me how the people in my life treat others. You know, if we go to a restaurant, are they polite to the people that are working there? That matters to me because that would ruin that experience for me to be around someone who is not kind in how they conduct themselves but all of those things whether you signal when you drive that doesn't matter in the recovery rooms because we're just there to hold space for each other's truth and it's it, it's unusual and it's so refreshing and it's not to say that those things don't aren't important to the other people there it's just it's sort of this in between place where reality is suspended for an hour while we take a pause and go in and share what we really need to release that day and it's so rare so having had that in your life how did that change things for you
2: I always talk about um recovery meetings as, be, as being somewhere where you can practice being yourself oh, it, I love it's that. a space where you can start to trust that the words you need to say are going to need to be heard by somebody else, but you can do it in a way where there will be nobody judging you. There will be nobody assessing you. There will be nobody who will come back to you and ask you or question you about what it was you said, why you said it. Um and that and that we give each other permission to practice. You know, come and come and be you in this room with me. Because this is where you can practice being yourself. Um and I I've taken that as a thing that I now do outside. So I I went and I, um, when I went back to work, I was really keen to find a way of bringing my recovery into work. Um, I used to work for a large financial institution in the UK and it was really important for me that it, my recovery existed in the workspace. I had to move away from places where I could hide different elements of myself, you know, taking off all these masks becoming who I was, Um, and it took me a while to find a way of doing that at work. And then we had Mental Health Awareness Week in the UK, and they wanted to publish some articles about different people in the organisation, and I volunteered my story, and it appeared on the intranet um, with a photo, with a a statement saying, I felt lost, alone, broken, and I shared about being a recovering alcoholic and what it meant and what it was like and being able to do that felt like I'd just taken my coat off but also then seeing that actually by doing it myself I'd given other people permission to also be vulnerable and that was just amazing I I have I have really benefited from being open in that workspace, from trusting that actually when I am me and the more me I am, the better it is for everybody around me because they find it easier to be them. And that actually so many people find it difficult to be themselves. It's not just alcoholics. It's it's just society. Everybody is really struggling to be their best selves. But if there are those of us who've, practice doing it in the rooms, have learned that actually the more I am myself, the easier it is for others. And it became becomes something we can share, share more widely. And I've I've loved that as a gift. That has just been amazing.
1: That is a beautiful way to think of it. Practice being ourselves. Sometimes our family, our friends that have known us for a long time, when we try to embrace change or growth, it can be hard for them because they have us, they have an understanding of us that they might be reluctant to let go of. And it's, it could be that even that they're angry with us and they want to stay angry with us a little longer. Yeah, <laughs> Don't go improving yourself. I'm yeah. not done being mad at you yet.
0: <laughs> so
1: <laughs> it, when we feel that push, change us, is hard. right? We can, sometimes we retreat from the change. So, you're right, and I, I love the way you phrased that, practice being yourself, because it can give us the backbone we need to perhaps express to our loved ones, reveal this new direction we're heading in, and if we get pushback from it, to stand our ground and say, this is really important to me, I feel strongly about this, and this is best, which we may not have the courage to do if we're only speaking it for the first time. to our families so to be in a group or in therapy as you mentioned is a great way to do that now you mentioned you were doing therapy as well as group work what did you learn about yourself and how did it help you in your recovery so I
2: I learned what did I learn so it's interesting I talk a lot in metaphors um and the things that always I, I always remember things I've, and metaphors as well. It, it's, it's a really, I, think, I guess, it's possibly linked to why I want to write a story. <laughs> um, I learned that I don't need to be tied to the expectations I think others have of me, and that a lot of those expectations aren't necessarily the expectations of others, but my presumed expectations. I learned that. I can do new things, and I can try new things, and that I'm not tied to the person that I became. Um, I sat in a meeting once and realised that I, I wore I wore masks, and not only wore masks, but I had a suit of armor on, a sword and a shield, um, and I I spent my entire life in defense mode. And I think through therapy, I began to understand how to come out of defense mode and that the opposite of defense mode wasn't necessarily attack mode, but to put all that stuff down and to slow down and see others for, for who they were rather than who I thought they were. And just letting my mind stop having to have all the answers but starting to trust my heart, starting to really trust my heart. Um, and to no longer be in survival mode. I did a lot of fight or flight or freeze. I spent a lot of time in freeze mode when I was in distress, Um, unable to speak, unable to think. And I needed a lot of help to get out of of that as a response. So to have moved to a space where I can seek to understand and be interested in others rather than only a feeling I needed to defend myself has been enormous and it, it's it's almost so enormous now that I can hardly hardly connect with the person I used to be and I sometimes can't see the emotional journey as clearly as as I used to be able to in the early days because it feels so far away um I very much felt like you know as, as a baby when I first came into the rooms and I've I've kind of gone through my toddler years my teenage years moved through my twenties, maybe maturing into my thirties now, which given that I'm 52 means I am kind of slowly catching up. Um, But it's, it's taken me on that emotional journey. And I think that's where therapy has been really helpful is just to help my emotional self catch up with my logical and physical self.
1: Louise, it has been just lovely spending an hour with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and thank you for being here today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Before you go, can you tell listeners where they can find you on Instagram? Uh,
2: Yes. So I am. My poetry is my therapy. I love it. All
1: (laughs) I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So listeners, just scroll down wherever you're listening to this. Look underneath the play button and you should see some notes that tell you where to find Louise's poetry on Instagram. Thank you so much for being here. And listeners, thank you for your ongoing support and love for this podcast. I do feel the love. Your messages, your offers to be on the show, and the way that you encourage one another is really a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for listening, everyone.
0: Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back. A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong Just cause you'll keep it on the side it Just stays and wait there To rob you of your pride